Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Joe, last week you sat down with Daryl Johnson, the former senior domestic terrorism analyst at the Department of Homeland Security and the ATF. Johnson wrote a 2009 DHS report on right-wing extremism that predicted a lot of what is happening today. Now, usually we do what else is on your mind at the end of the show, but given all of the issues involved last week, we wanted to talk about gun control at the top. So, Joe, 20 years ago... You were the White House press secretary during Columbine, April 20th, 1999. And sadly, nothing has really changed since then. Talk about gun control from a political perspective. Where is the debate politically? Yeah, well, you're you're right to mention Columbine. I was the president's press secretary then. I went in to the Oval Office and let him know that the shooting had happened and uh, then traveled with him out to Littleton, Colorado, Uh to visit with the community, the school, the families. The president went family to family, talked to every single family as long as they wanted to talk. Uh, We were there for hours. And as we walked out of there, I think we all had a common sense of resolve that we were going to fix this problem. Uh, And we worked at it and used every amount of political capital we had, and we just couldn't move the ball. The uh, entrenched interests you know, whether it's the NRA, the gun manufacturers, the Republican Party stood against making any change, doing anything to make the country safer. Uh, we had another moment uh, during President Obama's uh, presidency in Newtown, Connecticut, where, you know, young children were killed uh, in just the worst thing that I think any of us have ever seen. And again, there was resolve. President Obama put everything on the line. And again, nothing happened. Uh, Parkland, Florida, you name it. Uh, Virginia Tech, nothing happens. And my prediction is, and one of the reasons we're going to focus today not on gun control, but on domestic and white nationalist terrorism, is because nothing is going to happen again. So whether it's Columbine, Newtown, Parkland, Dayton, El Paso, this has been going on for 20 years. We hear a lot of thoughts and prayers We hear a lot of, we're going to get something done this time, 20 years on, I don't expect anything to change. And I have to tell you, um, if you had asked me walking out of Columbine High School 20 years ago, would we be here today? I would have said you were crazy, that the the country knows that we've got to do something about it. But the entrenched interests um, continue to win, and I don't see that changing even near 20 years on. Yeah, I agree. I was 11 years old at the time and the daughter of two public school teachers. And the conversation around the kitchen table and and the teacher conference room table, which I was privy to at the time just because I had two of them in my household, was about how we treated students in the classroom. They blamed video games. The Matrix was popular at the time. And so was, you know, kind of goth clothing for making trench coats cool and violence attractive. There were a lot of things we blamed, but they also knew that there was a gun problem at the time. And I'm curious what the conversation was like at the White House during those months afterward and 
if the conversation was initially about video games and if we're just recycling the same exact talking points 20 years later that we saw on Fox News this past weekend, that video games are to blame here and solving that and more prayer in school will help solve the entire issue. I think video games uh, have been an issue for the last 20 years. They are not central to the gun control issue. There's no science that shows there's a causal relationship. In fact, there's science and scientific studies to show that there is no causal relationship between violent video games uh, and those who commit mass murder. And there is increasing evidence that the real threat, the growing threat uh, in this country over the last decade has been white nationalist terrorism, domestic terrorism. There is all sorts of evidence of that, and that's something we need to focus on. Right. These really are two distinct issues. So let's listen to your interview with domestic terrorism expert Daryl Johnson. Our guest today is Daryl Johnson, a former senior domestic terrorism analyst at the Department of Homeland Security and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. Back in 2009, he wrote a DHS report on right wing extremism that was widely circulated in both the law enforcement community and the press. Daryl Johnson, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you. First, tell me a little bit about the experience that you brought to the table to be an expert on uh, domestic right-wing terrorism. Yeah, so my interest in this topic actually goes all the way back to when I was 15 years old. I remember reading about a standoff between some white supremacists and the FBI down in Arkansas in a remote mountain region on the shores of a lake. And this group was called the Covenant Sword Arm of the Lord. And I was just curious as a young man why a church uh, would basically take people from their jobs and move out to this remote area, cut off ties to family members, and await the second coming of Jesus and prepare for Armageddon. And uh, that just kind of was something that I was interested in. And as I grew older, I uh, went to college and majored in criminal justice. I did papers on these types of groups and later turned that into a federal career. Uh, so I started out uh, at the Army Counterintelligence Center at Fort Meade and uh, was studying terrorism over in uh, Asia and also Latin America. And right after the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, they needed someone to help with the force protection efforts here in the continental United States. And so that's when I started my career looking at these types of groups. And uh, that eventually led me to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, where I really gained my expertise supporting agents in the field and their investigations, and uh, later went over to Homeland Security Department to head up a team of analysts. We hear a lot about uh, all of the work, all of the money, all of the personnel that goes into fighting Islamic terrorism that originates outside the United States. Can you compare that investment to what we do domestically? Yeah, so in comparison, those analysts that look at domestic terrorism can be measured in the dozens uh, throughout the federal government where we've got hundreds of analysts looking at uh, overseas threats. In the intelligence community where I worked for a number of years, uh, we've got entire agencies that have counterterrorism offices uh, with hundreds of people Uh, looking at foreign threats. I'm talking about the CIA, NSA, the military services, uh, even the FBI. Uh, But here domestically, uh, the only agency that really has full-time resources devoted to this topic is the FBI. 
I led a very small team of analysts at Homeland Security for about six years looking at this topic, but my unit was shut down in the aftermath of uh, the report that I wrote in 2009. So I'll, I'll come to that in a minute, but is it fair to say that we have chronically underinvested in domestic terrorism over the last couple of decades? That is a fact, and that's something that I've been trying to raise awareness in the media about. So let's go to your report. You write a report for DHS. What prompted you to write the report? What did it say, and what was the reaction? Yeah, so two years earlier, uh, in 2007, uh, I received a call from the U.S. Capitol Police tipping us off that uh, an African-American senator from Illinois, Barack Obama, was considering running for president. And they wanted our unit uh, to basically monitor the Internet chatter from extremists and to see if there was any threats directed to Barack Obama. So after about a month or two after he had announced his uh, running for president, we didn't really see any threats. It was only when he won the Democratic nomination that the threats started rolling in. And we started handing that information off to both the Secret Service as well as the Capitol Police. Right after we received that request for information, I pulled my analysts together and asked them, uh, you know, what if, you know, what if Barack Obama, the first uh, African-American, gets elected to the presidency? What is that going to do to the threat landscape in this country? Because overwhelmingly since 9-11, our U.S. counterterrorism efforts have been looking at both al-Qaeda overseas coming into the United States as well as those radicalizing within the United States who are Muslim or sympathize with al-Qaeda. And we all agreed that uh, these white supremacists and anti-government groups would get very agitated and active uh, if an African-American became the president at the White House. So that's when we started collecting information, uh, pulling sources from the World Wide Web, state and local law enforcement reporting, federal reporting, non-government organizations, civil rights organizations, and we just started collecting uh, any and all information related to uh, threats uh, because of having a black president. Two other things that kind of factored into the report was the downturn in the economy that we had in 08 and how that served as kind of a fertile ground to recruit more people into anti-government groups. And we also had returning veterans coming back from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq who we were uh, concerned about being targeted for recruitment by these groups. So that's kind of the genesis of how the report uh, was put together. It was put together over an 18-month period, uh, went through 23 rewrites, uh, coordinated with multiple agencies, and we put it out. We briefed Napolitano uh, about a couple days before it was released, and everybody thought it was a great report. Now, Napolitano was Janet Napolitano, who was the head of DHS at the time. Before I get to the reaction, I want to have you look back a little bit. According to the report and some subsequent testimony you gave to Congress, you noticed an uptick in domestic groups' activity, uh, terrorist you know, groups, extremist groups, not just because of Obama, but because of a Democratic president. You saw something during the Clinton administration. Again, we had Oklahoma City. Uh, so was your concern that they, the extremist groups were both anti-African-American but anti-liberal Democrats? Yes. Yeah, so looking at this issue over the past four decades, uh, I've seen cycles When we have Democrats in power, typically the far right gets more active and agitated because they're fearful of gun legislation being passed or they're fearful of the Democrats expanding uh, rights to minority groups. 
favoring immigration, things like that. Typically, during Republican administrations, uh, these right-wing extremist groups decrease their activities, and we see more of the far left getting active and agitated because they're fearful of the Republicans deregulating various industries that are polluting the environment and also giving tax breaks to the rich. So that's kind of the the cycles that I've seen over the past 40 years. And of course, uh, this current administration bucks the trend of of these cycles. We've got these right-wing groups still continuing to operate at a heightened level under a Republican administration. We'll come to that because I think that's a really interesting point. But tell me about uh, the report went through 23 rewrites interagency, went to Janet Napolitano. What happened to the report? Yeah, so we released it a few days after briefing the Secretary of Homeland Security, and uh, we were very pleased with the results. We thought we had done a good job at warning uh, state and local law enforcement of this uh, anticipated change in the threat landscape uh, so that they could have some uh, ability to kind of prepare and develop policies and devote resources and money to combat the problem. To my surprise, uh, the report was leaked immediately. And the next thing I know, coming into the office uh, the following week, utter chaos had broken out in the office because we were being inundated with phone calls from concerned citizens thinking that we were uh, spying on conservatives. Uh, We had congressmen calling, uh, demanding to know the sourcing that was involved in uh, creating the report. And it was all over the conservative media as well as mainstream media. Uh, But the conservative media tended to take a more negative approach to the story, uh, saying that uh, we were spying on conservatives, that we were uh, demonizing and painting you know, conservatives as being potential terrorists. Military vets felt like they were slandered because we had mentioned that uh, possibility of them being recruited. Uh, and so it turned into this big uh, political firestorm, which you know, I never anticipated. Basically, what you're saying is you ran into D.C. politics. With the benefit of having some time to reflect on it, do you have any further understanding of why uh, conservatives and Republicans uh, were more interested in the politics of this than the substance? Yeah, it's very unfortunate that the warning and message got lost in all this uh, political uh, mudslinging. Uh, but looking back on it, uh, there were a couple of things that I think fed into this Republican backlash uh, to the report. Uh, the first thing was, uh, unbeknownst to me, a new movement within the Republican Party called the Tea Party had formed and were holding protests throughout the country around the same time this uh, report was disseminated. Uh, The second thing is Republicans were coming off some tough losses in the 2008 election. Not only did they lose the White House, uh, but they also lost a lot of seats in Congress and both the Senate and the House. So I think they were just kind of looking for anything that they could use to try to drum up a new base of support in the anticipation of the 2010 midterms. And my report became that. As an analyst, not a political operative, you're surprised by this. Um, I think I know from reading that you are a uh, registered Republican. You're not a uh, crazy liberal like me. Um, <laughs> didn't the reaction in 2009 to bury the report uh, and criticize the report uh, in some ways set us up for where we are now and in some ways make the country less safe? That's correct. Uh, because my report was politicized, not only was the warning and message lost, but it created a chilling effect throughout the law enforcement and intelligence communities. You know, in my office, uh, not only did we get all this uh, scrutiny from both the public and Congress, um, but people, a few people lost their jobs. 
uh, a group of analysts were retaliated against. People went inside the intelligence and law enforcement community saw this happen, and they're like, well, if this could happen to Daryl, who's got all this training and seniority and, and uh, analytical skills, this could certainly happen to, to me. And so the topic of domestic terrorism is already a political minefield because we're talking about extremist movements that focus on very divisive issues here in America like gun rights and immigration and abortion rights and other things. So this just kind of exacerbated the situation and, and made people even less uh, willing to follow this topic and monitor it properly. And so here we are 10 years later. If people would have taken my report seriously, we would have devoted more money and resources to the problem. We would have mature not only intelligence but law enforcement uh, programs and countering violent extremism programs that could have stemmed this threat somewhat. That must be personally very disappointing for you. Yeah, it's frustrating, uh, disappointing, and and really sad uh, because lives have been lost. Uh, This uh, problem has just grown year after year, month after month, and uh, the body counts are getting larger with each attack. Not too long ago, there was a time when we would have two, three, four people killed. Uh, Now we're up to 22 in El Paso. Taking it away from politics for a second, what drives these people? Um, You know, I think both your report and even more your testimony before Congress in 2012 got into some of the root causes. I was hoping you could share them with our listeners. Yeah, so we identified a number of root causes in the 2009 report. One was the unprecedented election of having an African-American elected to president. This is like the white supremacist's uh, worst nightmare come true. Uh, I remember as a teenager going into used bookstores and seeing joke books that had racist uh, jokes and things of this nature. Talk about uh, when a black occupies the White House, then you'll know that America has descended into a crap hole and that it'd be at its lowest point. So this is what these bigots and hate groups uh, talk about and chatter. Of course, the economic downturn uh, created fertile ground for anti-government groups uh, such as sovereign citizens that exploit people who are financially desperate, try to feed them a bunch of conspiracy theories and uh, different uh, things about why the economy collapsed and how they can use these pseudo-legal maneuvers to get out from under their credit debts. And then, of course, having a Democrat in power, uh, again, agitates some of the anti-government types because they're fearful of gun legislation and you know, infringement on their Second Amendment rights. But there's a whole host of things that play into these uh, cycles. Those are just a few. I noticed in some of your writings that free trade is one of the most difficult issues to really understand the details of, but it's a driver of right-wing extremism in some ways. Yeah, foreign outsourcing of jobs, unemployment. Uh, When people, I guess, aren't focused on their livelihoods, uh, their mind tends to wander. I guess there's that old phrase that an idle mind becomes a devil's workshop uh, certainly applies to these uh, extremists and how they go about marketing their message. So let's fast forward to the current situation. I'm interested in the information flow to these right-wing extremist groups, to domestic terrorists. Let me start with the media. Fox News, Infowars, how important are they uh, in providing the the content and the fuel to to the hate and and to uh, eventually the uh, the terror acts that we've seen? Yeah. So whenever media organizations uh, take a strong stance against certain issues and start raising the rhetoric on these types of issues, you're always risking 
pushing those on the outer fringes uh, who are on the brink of acting off the edge to the point where they conduct acts of violence. So words do matter uh, from our politicians, from the media, uh, and then you have even more extreme uh, forms of media like Alex Jones' Info Wars and shortwave radio programs that get people spun up and more agitated with the rhetoric and the tone that they take. It's one thing to watch Fox News and, if you're like me, bang my head against the wall and say it's making people crazy. But it sounds like you're saying that this actually does help mobilize these groups and mobilize them in a way that they take action. Yeah, so we saw um, a couple of incidents in the past uh, year or two where extremists were mobilized into taking a stand against the government. I'm referring to the uh, Bundy Ranch standoff uh, in Bunkerville, Nevada, as well as the Malheur Wildlife Refuge takeover. The way the media, conservative media, kind of handled that is they try to talk about these people being patriotic and doing the right thing and taking a stand against the government. But in reality, you're emboldening these people by reporting the news in that way. Uh, These people pointed guns at federal law enforcement officers. Uh, They took over a federal facility for over a month. Uh, destroyed some of the federal facility. So rather than painting these groups as patriotic and standing up to the government, they need to be called out for what they are. They're radicals. They're extreme. Uh, Some of them turn into terrorists. Uh, These ideologies uh, that these groups belong to uh, make calls for violence and provide the targets for these radicals to go after. One of the more interesting things in reading your work is the difficulty in combating the domestic terrorism. It's not the traditional terrorist cells that can be disrupted, but, you know, what you call the lone wolf problem. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So back in the 80s, these terrorist groups here in America were successfully infiltrated by law enforcement, and a lot of their activities and groups were disrupted and people arrested. Uh, So in lieu of that, uh, the domestic extremists have adopted this leaderless resistance strategy. Uh, It's actually based on an essay written by a prominent white supremacist who was a Vietnam veteran who studied the art of warfare, uh, wrote the essay called Leaderless Resistance, which calls for people to self-train, to identify targets within your community, Uh, not to talk about what your plans are, not to affiliate with groups because there's uh, the risk of informants and uh, agent provocateurs within the groups themselves. And so you operate in stealth, in secret, and you secretly plan and plot and prepare for your attack. Um, So this, as you can imagine, poses a a unique uh, problem for law enforcement because it's very difficult to identify and prevent these people from carrying out their attacks. On the other hand, uh, because you don't have a professional training camp or some professional bomb maker teaching the bomb making skills, a lot of these terrorist capabilities are less sophisticated. So you don't get the sensational type attacks that you would see from an ISIS or al-Qaeda cell. So that's kind of how they operate. Those are the tactics that they use, and they do it deliberately so that they could avoid law enforcement detection. So it's clear from the way your report was buried and your congressional testimony and the lack of action uh, that we're not doing enough. If we made you king for a day, um, what do we need to do? What, What steps does our government need to take first to take this threat seriously and then to combat it? There's so much that we can be doing. We're so far behind the curve uh, trying to catch up with this uh, threat that's had 10 years to grow and and to fester. 
Uh, it all starts with recognizing、uh, these acts of violence as terrorism, and with that comes the ability to start tracking it and gathering statistics, and then you can gauge whether it's growing or whether it's、uh, decreasing. And at that point,、uh, if you decide that it's、uh, increasing and getting worse, we can devote resources and money towards the problem. Uh, as far as where I would focus my efforts, it's going to be multifaceted. From the federal level, you need more agents and analysts devoted to investigating and assessing this threat.、Uh, our countering violent extremism program that we have in place currently is exclusively focused on countering radical Islamic extremists.、Uh, that program needs to be expanded to have an equal balance between both non-Islamic and Islamic extremists. Uh, training needs to be improved and increased、uh, for our state and local law enforcement officers and analysts that are on the front lines of dealing with these、uh, extremist groups.、Uh, from the community level,、uh, people need to get involved、uh, if they've got friends, family members, or relatives that are embracing these extremist beliefs.、Uh, rather than isolate them and ostracize them, we need to embrace these people and bring them back into the mainstream、uh, society and give them a cause to live for. Politely challenge and humorously challenge some of these extremist beliefs, and you know, try to rationally explain how they're poisonous to the mind, and that they're something that、uh, is not welcome in today's modern society. So, there's a lot of things we could do. It's got to be a top-down approach as well as a bottom-up approach. So, in reading your report from 2009, you anticipated the election of a Republican. It was Donald Trump in 2016 to tamp down、uh, right-wing extremism. Uh, it's not quite what happened. No, and we can thank the heated political rhetoric of the 2016 campaign for the continued、uh, rise and heightened activity of these groups.、Uh, this current administration needs to understand that when you mainstream extremist ideas, such as building border walls and、uh, banning Muslims、uh, to travel to the United States and mass deportation of immigrants, these were extremist ideas that I read about 10 or 15 years ago. On white nationalist websites,、uh, now they're being endorsed as policy by an administration. Also, retweeting messages from conspiracy sites about Muslims and extremist sites. Again, it's giving a green light to these extremists that they have somebody in the presidency that tacitly supports their belief system and their movements, and is turning a blind eye to what they're doing. And so they're looking at that as a license to misbehave and to, you know, conduct acts of violence. When I was reading your report,、uh, and you talked about the root causes beyond just hatred of change or hatred of African Americans, and you started digging into economic anxiety, to、uh, immigration, and to free trade agreements. To me, it read like the Trump campaign seemed to be built.、Um, And the foundation of it was this white nationalist philosophy that you had studied in the '90s and through 2012, at least. Yeah, definitely catered to the extremist message and created a support base. You、uh, recently told uh, a columnist uh, for the New York Times that、uh, what surprised you with Trump、uh, or with a Republican winning was it it increased. And you talked about what Trump has done is added fuel to the fire. How has he done that? He does that through、uh, demonizing and dehumanizing his opponents,、uh, whether it's the Democrats,、uh, whether it's the media calling it fake news. 
whether it's immigrants coming into the country, calling them invaders or an invasion, likening people to rodents, calling third world countries crap hole countries. This is all the tone and rhetoric of bigotry and hatred. Uh, and it kind of stirs up the radicals uh, to the point where they start looking at these people as targets. You said mainstreaming ideas. I, I, I think about it uh, along the same lines as normalizing uh, right-wing extremist views uh, and giving a green light to domestic terrorists to move ahead where they didn't feel like they had that before. I think of it from a political point of view. But do you have the expertise? Do you think that President Trump has normalized this behavior? And has that been a trigger for some of these domestic attacks? Yeah, so he's allowed this environment to persist as well as become you know, more pervasive. When he uses that rhetoric that I've talked about, uh, when we had Charlottesville and other attacks, he tries to you know, minimize the threat. He tries to uh, say that the far left and the far right pose an equal threat or tries to say that there's good people in these rallies and protests. Again, these are all things that kind of uh, embolden these extremists and, and give them a permissive environment to operate. I want to read something that you wrote in your congressional testimony in 2012 uh, and then just pose a question to you. You wrote, I often describe extremist ideology in my law enforcement training as a poison absorbed into a person's mind. Extremist ideology uses deception, half-truths, and blatantly false and often oversimplistic explanations to solve complex national issues or personal problems. Extremist ideologies are quick to blame others for these problems, often providing justification for violence and criminal activities. Scapegoats are also given people, organizations, and institutions providing a lengthy list of potential targets to avenge these grievances. I read that, and I thought it was one of the most profound and accurate descriptions of Donald Trump I've ever read, uh, maybe taking out the last sentence. Do you see Trump as someone who engages in the same type of blatant falsehoods, half-truths, sort of self-defense mechanisms that seem to characterize many of these domestic terrorist groups? He's speaking their language. He's trying to take their ideas and implement them as policies. You know, we've seen two recent examples of how Trump's rhetoric inspired people to conduct acts of violence. The one shooter that we had in El Paso left a manifesto and used the very same language that our president used to describe immigrants as invaders, as an invasion, as rodents. Uh, we also had the serial bomber uh, last year right before the uh, – election, that serial bomber targeted all of those Trump opponents, the fake news that Trump says, uh, the Democrats uh, that Trump opposes. So by merely dehumanizing these people, uh, there's certain uh, radicals out there that may be mentally unstable, that may just be waiting for something to, to serve as a catalyst to egg them on to follow through with their plans. Uh, there was two recent examples right there where Words from the president actually inspired people to target the opponents of the presidency. Give me your worst case scenario over the next couple of years, assuming Trump continues in his presidency, uh, of this issue, of this problem. 
Yeah, I think that we're at a point now where uh, these groups are going to continue uh, to operate at a heightened level, even if Trump's not reelected, uh, because we've neglected this topic. We haven't devoted any resources or money to really combat it. It's had 10 years to grow. Uh, if we decided today to devote all the money, resources, to vote at this problem, it's still going to take many years for us to slow the momentum down. And we're also at a cross point in our country where the demographics are changing. That's a very fact. And that's what's pushing a lot of these uh, white supremacists and other extremists over the edge and wanting to commit acts of violence is because they see America's color is changing from white to brown. And uh, they don't like that and they want to do something about it. So unfortunately, I don't have a very optimistic view of the next few years. You, that's the worst case. Give me some sense of hope here that we can address this problem. Well, the only hope that I see at this point is we finally have government officials, including the president, uh, calling this as terrorism. Uh, whether or not he continues to have that same view or whether he truly believes that, at least that's the very first step is to try to recognize and identify the problem. Uh, so that is the only thing I could hope uh, cling on to at this point is being hopeful. Uh, so hopefully uh, these recent attacks, uh, the fact that they're getting worse and that more, more and more people are being killed and injured, uh, that our government officials, both legislators, law enforcement, and the executive branch will finally wake up and identify this problem and, and do what's necessary to combat it. I have no doubt that uh, when and if uh, President Trump listens to this podcast, um, his tweet will call you things like nasty and loser. But uh, anyone who recognizes that words matter on this podcast, we love. And certainly listening to you, I think most of the country would disagree with the president and would call you a patriot. Uh, and we deeply appreciate the work you've done. Um, it's tragic that much of it has been ignored for so long, but as you said, uh, it is coming to the forefront. I encourage you to continue to speak out and get people uh, to pay attention to this because the threat to America, particularly uh, listening to the FBI director recently, uh, the threat is inside uh, this country, and it's, it's more dangerous than the threat outside. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate uh, your insight and wisdom. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate those kind words. Important interview, Joe. What surprised you the most? What surprised me the most, actually, was this is a guy who's a registered Republican. This is a guy who, at 15 years old, was uh, reading up on criminal justice and, you know, wanted to be, you know, involved in the FBI or the ATF, uh, not some, you know, crazy liberal. And he drew a straight line between Donald Trump's rhetoric and the El Paso uh, mass murder. And he drew a straight line between Republican resistance to taking on this issue uh, and the fact that these groups have been able to grow while the Republicans forced us to look the other way. Uh, again, um, I think his work is invaluable. At the end of all of these things, there's always a look back and I think we're going to we're going to see that there are there there is blood on the hands of a lot of people in the conservative movement, whether it be politicians, media, uh, the president, for ignoring this problem and ignoring it in a way and dismissing it while these groups were allowed to grow. 
Okay, now back to regularly scheduled end of the episode, What's on Your Mind, Joe. The first issue we wanted to get your thoughts on this week is teleprompter Trump versus Twitter Trump. Last week, in the aftermath of the El Paso and Dayton shootings, President Trump read a statement from a teleprompter in what some commentators said looked like a hostage video. Explain for us, Joe, teleprompter Trump versus Twitter Trump and why it matters. Well, teleprompter Trump is when the president gets a serious look on his face and actually reads the words on the teleprompter. That's not Donald Trump. We know it's not Donald Trump because each and every time within a few hours, he's negated everything he's said. This time uh, his speech was um, uh, unity over racism. And each and every time he's he's absolutely turned around and said something different. Now, if you want to know what the real Donald Trump thinks, read his tweets and watch him afterwards. Watch him after he's seen the press coverage. When you look at the Dayton and El Paso trips, there's part of it that the only way I can describe it is sickening. Teleprompter Trump should be ignored. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, The real Trump is the nasty, attacking, narcissistic, it's all about me, Trump, it's all about the the respect for him um, that you see uh, when he's not on teleprompter, when he's speaking and in his tweets. Joe, you actually just quoted from the New York Times headline, which said initially, quote, Trump urges unity versus racism. But the New York Times took a lot of heat for that headline. And after some significant outrage on social media, the Times editors changed it to, quote, assailing hate, but not guns. What did you make of last week's headline gate, as we called it? And why is it important? The New York Times screwed up. Their headline bought into the Trump speech and gave it uh, what I'll call contextual credibility. Like he gave this speech and he has said these things many times. So, of course, that's what he meant when, in fact, he's not said these things. And the headline uh, failed to capture the complexity uh, of the situation and what happened in that room that morning. And people were outraged and making the argument of cancel your subscription to The New York Times. I looked at that and I thought that's the exact wrong thing to do. I tend to agree with you, Joe. My one question, and this is one that I saw from some of our listeners on Twitter, is how else can you communicate the message to editors at The New York Times that the way that they handle certain stories or even President Trump in particular uh, headlines uh, is not where it should be, that there's room for improvement other than – not renewing your subscription or canceling your subscription? Is there another effective way to communicate that message? We now have a way to express our outrage. Twitter, social, other social media platforms. And I think it, it, it forced the New York Times to look at their headline and say, did we get this right? And I give them credit for uh, making a change and recognizing that they made a mistake. We know things about Russia's interference with our elections, about what's going on in North Korea, what's going on in China, that we wouldn't know without the New York Times. And canceling your subscription is doing exactly what Donald Trump and the Republicans want you to do. They want you to know less. They want you to not believe what you see and read. 
So I, I think it's absolutely wrong to cancel your subscription. The New York Times is a business. There's lots of ways to send a message. But to say I, I'm going to get the New York Times out of my life and stop supporting it through subscription, I think is a little bit crazy. And finally, Joe, while all that was going on last week, President Trump escalated his trade war with China. The U.S. Treasury officially declared China a currency manipulator, the first time it has done so since 1994. Aside from the trade wars being easy to win, what did you make of Trump's escalation of the trade war with China? To state the obvious, trade wars are not easy to win. Trade wars generally, uh, it's just degrees of how much you lose. At least in American history, we've had disastrous trade wars uh, going back over the last 150 years. I can't think of a trade war uh, where we didn't suffer. It is just terrible economic policy. This is a really interesting case. Well, this we brought on ourselves. We started this trade war. uh, And now we've got to figure out a way to uh, make sure that the U.S.-China trade relationship does not deteriorate into a worldwide contagion that will lead to worldwide recession or even depression. Um, Larry Summers, one of the best economic thinkers of our generation, uh, wrote last week that we are now heading towards a worldwide economic crisis because of the U.S.-China trade war that Trump started. Uh, And he made the point that Trump has started something that he has no concept of how to get himself out of. So in doubling down this week, he's made the likelihood of a worldwide economic crisis more likely. I'm not an economist, but I do know politics. And I think if we look forward a year, I think it's very likely this is going to be the number one um, or number two issue in the campaign that the economy is slowing, that people are paying higher prices, and that the cause of all of this was Donald Trump, you know, uh, Donald Trump's at 41% approval rating. Imagine what his approval rating will be when the economy isn't strong uh, and people are feeling even more pain than they feel now. So I think this is perhaps the issue that Republicans wanted to run on today, A year from now, I have a feeling we're going to be in a different place. Well, we'll certainly come back a year from now and uh, issue a report card on that projection. But I have a feeling you are probably right. I think that's all we've got for you this week, Joe. Thanks for joining us. Until next week. Thanks, Katie. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.